You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Chris Costa, who is the new executive director of the International Spy Museum. Prior to coming to us, he serves as the special assistant to the president and senior director for counterterrorism on the National Security Council. At the NSC, he was responsible for coordinating counterterrorism policy and strategy, as well as U.S. hostage recovery activities. Before the NSC, he was with the United States Special Operations Command, U.S. SOCOM, as program director in the operations directorate. In preceding SOCOM, he served as a department of the Navy civilian at the Naval Special Warfare Development Group with U.S. Navy SEALs, and as a senior adjunct instructor with Norwich University's Bachelor of Science in Strategic Studies and Defense Analysis Program. With Norwich University, he taught on topics related to national security, strategy, and counterterrorism. In May of 2013, Chris was inducted into U.S. SOCOM's Commando Hall of Honor for extraordinary and enduring service to special operations forces. So welcome, Chris, and thank you for taking the time to go down the stairs to talk to us here on SpyCast. Hey, good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. So whenever we have someone who has a a long and distinguished career in intelligence, we want to look back and talk a little bit about how they got to this position. This is a just small community, uh, even if we expand it beyond kind of the civilian intelligence to now looking at special operations and then the military side, it still makes up a very small percentage of the overall population. So usually there's a unique origin story that leads people to this job. So what, what got you into this world? Well, first of all, again, good morning. It's a, it's a privilege to be able to talk about my background, um, particularly since I really have never done that. So it's an unnatural (laughs) act, if you will. But it's also been cathartic to reflect on a career, and I've done that in the last month or so, uh, anticipating that we would do something like this. So to answer your question, as a young boy, I was really a dreamer. And uh, I read a book about the CIA, and that really animated my imagination. I was fascinated by the training. I didn't get the the nuance of the book. I didn't understand completely the story, but the the core work of a CIA officer uh, fascinated me. So that was my first exposure to intelligence, reading a book. And then um, in 1972, I think I was about 10 10 years old, I saw the the attack 
on Munich, the Olympics, uh, as I was watching it live. And uh, that was a, um, a painful experience for all of us to watch terrorism live. So those two ideas of intelligence and terrorism and counterterrorism, even at a young age, I thought someday I would like to be involved in that kind of work. I, I just didn't know that uh, my path would lead me in that direction. You know, even in the 1970s, you didn't know a lot about CIA. You really didn't, even when you were going into the military, you hadn't assumed that an intelligence career might be in your future. You thought about Massachusetts State Police Officer or the FBI. Um, you know, what what eventually brought you to the intelligence side? Because you joined the Army, you were an infantry officer. Right. So I uh, started out in the infantry, and I'm really glad I did it because that's a, that's a great way to ground you, uh, no pun intended, to, to make you understand the importance of battlefield intelligence. And I was a scout platoon leader, and I loved the idea of collecting intelligence. Uh, my, my platoon out on the battlefield on motorcycles uh, and dismounted, collecting intelligence and providing that to the user, the customer, the consumer, which was a battalion commander, in essence. Um, and I enjoyed that. But also, this was between wars. And uh, I was fascinated with the idea of, again, going back to my dreaming, I was fascinated by being an infantry officer. But really, what I wanted to do is challenge myself uh, in a different realm. And that was uh, to, to pursue what what I always wanted to do, and that's be an intelligence officer. But I knew that the military would give me the experience. It would give me a wide exposure. I could go many different directions as an Army intelligence officer. So I had an opportunity to branch transfer, and that's exactly what I did. And this is a time you mentioned between wars, but this is a time in the 1980s where there really is a development of two different U.S. armies. There's, there's the big army, the army that's being trained to fight across the Fulda Gap in Europe, the army that's being trained to fight in Korea, if necessary. And then there's kind of the army on the periphery, the army operating in Central America, doing counter-guerrilla work, you know, working with surrogates and proxies. And, and the path to promotion in the army, number one, doesn't necessarily go through MI. But also within MI, it really doesn't go through the small army side of things. So you kind of double whammied yourself to a degree by choosing not only the outlier in MI – you weren't trying to be a tank battalion commander, but also even within MI, you chose the kind of small, you know, little brush fire wars around the world. Oh, Vince, you're exactly right. And uh, that's part of my uh, little self-deprecating humor that I really uh, set myself up for failure because I pursued special operations, counterintelligence, and human human intelligence. Those three disciplines were virtually a kiss of death in the early 90s, the late 1980s. That said, I followed some great career advice, and I'd offer this to anyone, and I still do when I coach, mentor young men and women that are interested in a career of national security, in particular the military. And I'd say, hey, you know, pursue your own desires, be the best at what you do, be yourself. And that's essentially what I did. And it worked out. I just did the best I could in each job I was in. And I really didn't worry about my long-term career. And as it happened, it, those three disciplines, counterintelligence, human, and special operations turned out to be really the, the disciplines of choice in a post 9-11 world. So, uh, but I did absolutely pursue the periphery. Uh, when the big army was focused on 
weapons, equipment, and organization of, uh, of our Cold War foes, right? The, the big Soviet Union. When we understood the weapons and equipments and organization from team all the way up to armies, that's what we focused on. But I wasn't interested in that. Although I learned it, I wanted to work on the edges. I wanted to work on the peripheries. I wanted to do what was then a term of art, which was called low-intensity conflict. So leaving Fort Huachuca certified counterintelligence agent, I wanted to go to Honduras, and I spent uh, a year, year and a half in, uh, in Honduras. And this is timely uh, to be in Central America. You, uh, while in your time in Honduras, you took a trip to Panama, just uh, basically just with say hi. Um, and it just so happened you showed up on a pretty important day. Exactly right. Uh, great timing, great luck. I like to joke sometimes that I'm a bit of a Forrest Gump. I found myself in amazing situations, and it was unintended in many cases, and good fortune, as it turns out. So I literally went down to brief the brigade commander with uh, spit-polished jungle boots and jungle fatigues, went from Honduras to Panama, and uh, I got on the phone because we didn't have the internet, and I told my wife, don't worry about all that stuff you're reading about Panama. This is back and forth. Everything's going to go okay. And that was 19 December 1989. When we got on the ground, the brigade commander said, you guys should fly back home. But Chris, you're a counterintelligence agent. We could probably use you know, your help on the, on the battlefield in the next few days as we execute Operation Just Cause. And as it turned out, that was the eve of the invasion, 19 December. Right, so you showed up essentially the day of or the day before because the invasion kicked off in the middle of the night. You couldn't just call the wife and let her know what was happening. I mean, how long between when you said, don't worry about this, and when you finally were able to contact her and let her know you were okay? So it was 19 December, and uh, my wife didn't hear from me until 24 December, Christmas Eve. When I got back to Honduras, that was the first time I was really able to get to a phone and make a call. So for virtually, you know, a week, uh, my wife didn't know where I was other than in Panama. Um, but we always operated with the, the premise that no news is good news. And uh, my wife was an extraordinary army wife. And uh, she operated that whole, the whole time I was in the military with that premise in mind. So what was the job of a counterintelligence officer at, in Panama? Because you, you, if anyone knows anything about the invasion itself, didn't take all that long. Uh, we, we basically applied overwhelming force. But, of course, there was a, uh, an issue that the ultimate target uh, was a man, an individual, Emmanuel Noriega. Um, so what were you doing? Why, why were you so considered uh, an important asset that you should not fly back to Honduras? Why could you be used? I think they just needed uh, young officers, young enlisted men that were trained in women, that were trained in counterintelligence to help with screening. Because if you can just imagine that night, that first evening of Just Cause, it was relatively chaotic. Everyone was hitting their objectives. Special operations were at, you know, uh, deployed in earnest. Everyone was hitting their battle positions. Literally, there were battle lines on, on military installations where families, some families were still literally in place. So it was relatively chaotic. And throughout that night, 
scores and scores, hundreds of uh, Panamanians were rolled up. And mixed among those Panamanian civilians were uh, Panamanian defense forces that were trying to uh, uh, run away from, you know, what we were seeking them for. And that is their uh, their collusion, if you will, with with uh, the uh, Noriega regime. So in essence, we had to sort through that, the wheat from the chaff, uh, which is classically a counterintelligence mission in a battlefield. So we spent a lot of time talking, interrogating in some cases, and interviewing Panamanians to try to separate who are the PDF that are lying, who are the PDF that want to cooperate. Because remember, as you mentioned, we were trying to hunt for General Noriega. And uh, many of the PDF leadership we wanted to seek and find so we can identify where Noriega was hiding. So that was one counterintelligence task that we had that night. Um, under a sporadic sniper fire, uh, we also collected documents to aid in the hunt for Noriega. Any evidence that would get us to the objective. And all of that, as I said, happened in a very, uh, very chaotic few days. There's a lot of making things up as you went along. There's not a ton of experience in hunting for an individual. I mean, nowadays, we're pretty good at it. But in 1989, you know, we didn't have that precedent. We didn't have the precedent of something we'll talk about later in the 1990s where we got pretty good at doing that. But the last military action prior to this was essentially Grenada, which is a, you know, a strong weekend. And then, of course, Vietnam. So both the manhunting is brand new. And I would ask you about the capabilities of joint operations, because some of the, the chaos from Panama stems from the fact that these are not units that we're used to working together. And there's certainly a lot of scuttlebutt slash urban legend about if it's not friendly fire, but people being confused about, is that the Navy? Is that the PDF? Is that the Army? And no, no one really knowing where anyone was. On the ground, as you were moving around, how much did you see of that? There was some fratricide. Uh, candidly, I was at the Comandancia, uh, which was the uh, headquarters for General Noriega, and uh, the the very platoon that provided our security the day after, you know, the initial invasion, or maybe it was a day, a couple days after that very platoon had taken friendly fire that night from AC-130 gunships. And uh, there were some uh, significant wounded. So again, separating uh, friendlies from foe continues to be a problem on the battlefield, but we've gotten better increasingly over the year, years. The use of UAVs, uh, the coordination, the joint war fighting. We learned in Grenada that we needed to fight better joint. In Panama, we fleshed out a lot of that. And then, of course, came Desert Storm, a lot of learning there, but it happened so quickly. And then the post-9-11 paradigm. We've had decades of experience of synchronizing effects on the battlefield and doing battlefield coordination to this day right. in Syria, for example. Well, that's synchronizing effects within the DOD. But what about interagency? Did you have the opportunity in Panama to work closely with any of the civilian intelligence agencies that were operating on the ground? Yeah, it was very episodic. I found myself going through documents downtown with um, CIA analysts. We'd pick things up out of the headquarters. You ask lessons learned. Um, the Panamanians had a perfectly good filing system. Instead of 
staying in place at the Comandancia, securing that location, we took all those files out, ones that we deemed were important, we took them out of their, their perfectly good filing system and brought them back to the headquarters. In hindsight, that made no sense at all. We should have just set up headquarters at the Commandancia itself and used a perfectly good filing system. But we worked some of those issues with the CIA officers. We were collaborative, but we certain, certainly didn't prepare together. It was truly episodic. It was on the fly. So you started in a legendary unit, the 101st Airborne, and after Panama, you moved from that to a, another legendary unit, one, one that's not as well known, perhaps, as the 101st, but this is the 10th Special Forces. Uh, and this, you know, it, there, we did a podcast, actually, eh, about a year ago uh, with someone from 10th Special Forces who talked about the time in Berlin operating uh, as essentially a stay-behind force in case World War III broke out. Uh, but 10th Special Forces had a bit of a different mission moving into the late 80s, early 90s when you were there. Um, but before you left Honduras to join this 10th Special Forces, um, you had a bit of a kind of a unwelcome experience when it comes to understanding real-world terrorism. Uh, and you tell, told me a story uh, about your celebration, the dinner, before you left Honduras, about two of the people who were at that dinner, uh, a colonel and a lieutenant colonel. Can you talk a little bit about kind of this sad realization of the realities of terrorism in the world. Yeah, before I left Honduras, we had a big celebration. It, uh, it was a, a formal, formal uh, in the context of Honduras. We had our battle dress uniforms on, and it was a great celebration. Lots of toasts, a lot of fun. And I remember it just was a, a really pleasant event for team building. And uh, Colonel uh, James Hallams, who I knew from the 101st as a battalion commander, was was present that night. And I recall understanding that uh, his his roommate was assassinated, uh, a Navy SEAL, years before in, in El Salvador by the FMLN, which was a terrorist organization and a guerrilla uh, group. And uh, I remember that seed was planted, and uh, it always occurred to me that that's a you, you see Hallam's every day and you realize that terrorism assassination touched his life. It could have been Hallam's. It wasn't. He was lucky and uh, he had a distinguished career after that. Uh, but that night there was another lieutenant colonel that I had worked with in the 101st, Lieutenant Colonel David Pickett. Um, I knew him, as I said, from the 101st. He was a very capable aviator. And as I recall the story, his helicopter was shot down. Uh, or, or it crashed. Uh, I forget the circumstances in El Salvador, but he and his crew survived that crash. But the FMLN captured him and uh, killed him, and I believe killed his flight crew. And I remember that was my first exposure on a very personal level to terrorism. And uh, all of this, to include seeing leftist terrorist organizations and groups, and us being the targets in in some cases, not in big dramatic ways, but all of those uh, seeds were planted. All of that learning helped me as I continued through the rest of my career. So we talked about you moving to 10 Special Forces, and this is around the time of Operation Desert Storm. Right. And while there were numerous Special Forces units, uh, both capital S, capital F, meaning U.S. Army Green Berets, and special operators like the SEALs and, and the Rangers and Delta and everyone else operating within Desert Storm, actually doing 
a lot of the fighting in southern Iraq, 10 special forces deployed somewhere else, right. uh, an area where there wasn't a ton of fighting. Uh, but it turned out to be, at least for today's conversation, a really interesting introduction to some of the crazy of this area of the world. You're, you're deployed to Turkey. And at the time, it was very sensitive, although when we came back, it was no no secret that we were in Turkey. Some of the specifics of the mission, which were really contingencies, uh, we never executed, and that was sensitive at the time. But we did have exposure to our Turkish counterparts, and we did plan on operations in northern Iraq. That said, Desert Storm was over very quickly. And then we redeployed. Mm-hmm. And it was somewhat embarrassing at some levels because we redeployed as heroes. And it was extraordinary to see the public the public um, open arms. And it was a healing at the time. It's hard to comprehend it now. Uh, we've come a long way. But there was a lot of healing because the, the nation was still talking about Vietnam and how troops came back. But we, from 10th Special Forces, we returned and we were treated to a tremendous uh, return, uh, a lot of media exposure, and it was really, uh, it was really heartwarming. But that said, we didn't deploy into northern Iraq, but the learning was incredible because what happened soon thereafter became very, very, uh, very interesting, especially as you alluded to, in terms of today's environment. And we went back in less than 30 days, which was hard on the families. Mm-hmm. We went back to Turkey, and then we deployed to provide comfort, because at the time you might recall that thousands, tens of thousands of Kurds started to be massacred, in essence, by remnants of, of Saddam Hussein's regime. And those Kurds flooded southeastern Turkey at the time. In 10 spe- special forces, I was very lucky to see these Green Beret teams, to work with them on the ground throughout southeastern Turkey as they deployed in a humanitarian environment that still was charged lethally. What I mean by that is the environment was very, very dangerous. There were PKK, Kurdish separatists, terrorists. There were Turks that wanted to get to Turkish military and special operations and intelligence services that wanted to ferret out who the terrorists were. There was an insurgency in southeast Turkey. There were Iraqi intelligence services operating among these refugee camps, all ad hoc in a humanitarian crisis of epic proportions. And Tet Special Forces organized, like any other uh, unconventional environment, if you will, and they organized based on that 10 or 12 man detachment with the medic, with their radio operator, their communicator, with their intelligence non-commissioned officer. That team deployed into sectors and started doing the triage. How do we feed these folks? How do we take care of uh, the medical needs, the disease needs, and all of this with tens of thousands of refugees. And it was incredible to see that play out. And that was really a uh, eye-opening experience to see also how special forces, non-commissioned officers started organizing along tribal lines. And 
those seeds were planted, those tribal engagements with Kurdish leaders, identifying who were the movers, that started the relationship that was continuous to the present day. We'll be right back after this. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then, you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. You can see how the importance of a, like I said, a staff sergeant or a sergeant first class and starting to understand some of the politics behind here because the PKK, the Peshmerga, they're fighting a war against Turkey in many cases. That Turkey being a NATO ally, we want to support them as much as we can. But the PKK and the Peshmerga now are fighting against ISIS or are fighting against our enemies, of you know, their terrorists or Al-Qaeda or others. And this is really kind of a first wake-up call for a lot of people who would later become pretty prominent uh, within the U.S. military to the crazy political dynamics of this part of the world. Yeah, and if, if you look at the present day, uh, that learning that we did, those experiences have helped us today. It helped inform our interactions right now with the Syrian Democratic Forces, which are predominantly Kurds. And we're dealing with Turks who are NATO partners And yet, Turks are engaging some of our friends that we have trained and worked with against our, you know, foes, ISIS. So if you can just imagine that battlefield playing out today, those experiences have been extraordinary. And yet, um, some of it repeats itself again with Turks who are extremely prideful and at the same time, they're NATO allies, but they have their own sensibilities. And yet... Uh, we're operating in spaces where they're going after friends that we have. And yet some of those actors are also terrorists. Right. Um, so it's a confused environment. Oh, did I mention that there are Russians operating in that space? And Hezbollah and Ara- other Iranian-backed uh, operatives and militias. So it's a very dynamic environment. So let me change tracks a little bit, but when you redeploy, uh, you told me a story about a Michigan exercise um, where actually, all throughout the country there are these small little pockets of places where special forces do these exercises, and whether it's North Carolina or Michigan and other places. And this is an exercise that you helped to kind of put together, uh, and you learned something pretty interesting about how terrorism wasn't necessarily just in the Middle East. Yeah, that's exactly right. So uh, having – Having been in the Army all those years, we focused, of course, on on counterintelligence and intelligence overseas. The Army 
had its problems throughout the 60s and the 70s. So we are, were very strict when it came to how we execute operations in the United States, for example. So in short, we might study a little bit about domestic terrorism, but that wasn't something that we really touched. And yet, we were up in Michigan doing a unconventional warfare exercise, again, trained by the best in the world, in my humble opinion, and that was 10 Special Forces in, in their element, building an unconventional underground, if you will, to move B-52 pilots through a network, um, a mission that we might do overseas. So we did that throughout the state of Michigan. But while we were there, we found out there were militias that literally collected intelligence against, I think it was Camp Grayling up in Michigan. And uh, that, again, and animated my interest in the idea of domestic terrorists. I didn't know anything about militia groups, and I began to study them on my own and understand there was this, uh, this pervasive idea, idea of uh, right-wing conspiracies. And that, those seeds were planted. That learning started to happen for me. And then, of course, with Oklahoma right, City. Right. This is right before Oklahoma that, City. Right. It really kind of puts a, an exclamation point on the end of that learning for you. Exactly. Yeah. And then with Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, of course, then the nation started to understand more about the right-wing conspiracies. You know, David Koresh in the compound mm -hmm. uh, in Waco. All of that became a battle cry for these fringe groups, extremists in the United States. So um, all of that from left-wing terrorist organizations to right-wing uh, became sort of a vehicle for me to understand terrorism from cradle to grave. And of course, all of that um, learning was very useful mm -hmm. when 9-11 happened, not to get ahead of our story. Yeah, so let, let's walk it back because you actually got a chance to do some old-fashioned counterintelligence work shortly thereafter when you were deployed to Belgium for, as a counterintelligence officer uh, at the headquarters there. Uh, and this is, a to me, this is a historically a fascinating time because this is right after the Cold War ends. So there's a lot of moving parts. And this is not there's one bad guy and he's to the east and everyone's basically a puppet of that bad guy. With the Cold War ending, everyone's moving in 27 different directions and it's not necessarily easy to pick out who's a friend and who's a foe. And although espionage kind of continued on, you have a lot of new problems to deal with. It's not just what are the Soviets up to. It's you have the former republics where – there might be new loose nuclear weapons. You have European gangs. You have weapons transfer to places that we would both eventually be in the late 1990s, like going south into areas like the Balkans. How do you keep track of everything happening? Was it chaos? It was a fascinating time. It was post the wall coming down, you know, circa 1989. The wall came down. Peace was breaking out. There was a lot of, if not chaos, certainly it was a time that there was a great deal of uncertainty. And as a young counterintelligence agent, wearing civilian clothes, dealing with six different intelligence services, um, housed in Belgium, or headquartered, I should say, in Belgium, we were trying to sort through all of that people wanting to host Russian families in their homes. And yet we knew that there was a significant penetration. When I say we, 
the intelligence community knew at the time there was media disclosures that there was a high-ranking penetration within NATO unbeknownst to me we were dealing with the secretary in the office of NATO's NATO office of security and her husband uh, his name was Rupp was a penetration by the Stasi the East German intelligence service famed for their ability to execute um, in some cases flawless human intelligence so all of this experience for a young captain was uh, in some ways it was dreamlike because I was on the streets of Belgium Spain the United Kingdom we were dealing with in the United Kingdom of course they were very much worried still about the IRA Spain was very much worried about the ETA uh, the Basque separatist mm -hmm. organizations and then I'd make forays to Germany and uh, left-wing terrorism seemed to be dying there but from an espionage standpoint we were trying to understand were the Russians trying to penetrate NATO and we had this environment where everybody in 16 different NATO countries at the time uh, were trying to uh, make friendly overtures uh, former enemies in quotes were trying to be our friends mm -hmm. and we knew that we were very vulnerable at the time so those were the tremendous experiences I had as a young counterintelligence agent really taught by some of the some of the best in in the army programs at the time was this your first opportunity to do joint counterintelligence operations with foreign partners yes um, that was my first opportunity really to work closely with foreign partners because in many cases our operations really and our investigations were done jointly they weren't done unilaterally so it was a very interesting position to be in to work with a NATO partner jointly that could have been the French could have been uh, the uh, the Dutch for example um, we worked multilaterally in some cases. Was that was it multilaterally with their militaries, or did you have the opportunity to work with some of their civilian intelligence? It was a combination. It was a combination, and the coordination, as you might guess, was significant. Yeah. Uh, you had to coordinate with the the U.S. intelligence agencies as well as intelligence agencies from other countries, but dominantly or predominantly, I should say, we worked with uh, our counterparts in military intelligence. So we're going to skip a couple of years because we have to. There are certain things we still can't have a conversation about. Maybe down the road, certain things will be declassified and move ahead to the late 1990s to a, to a, a time period where we had just found out when we met each other a little while, you know, a couple months ago that uh, we were essentially about 30 minute car ride from each other for a good part of a year in Bosnia. Uh, you were more in the northern part and I was more in the southern part. Um, but Bosnia has some pretty interesting opportunities for not only learning some of the CT side, uh, but certainly the intelligence side as well. Um, I, I categorize it when you're looking at Bosnia, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, as you really have two major concerns when you're operating inside this environment. One are the Serb nationalist side. So you have people you know, being infiltrated from Serbia proper, but also the Bosnian Serb nationalists who would start the war instantaneously over, you know, the minute we leave. And then you have the former Mujahideen. You have the kind of the infancy of Al-Qaeda forming in this area where you have to worry about that because we now know and, and 
some knew at the time that there were elements that had flooded into Bosnia during the war to support the Muslim side that were kind of the precursors to all the people we know and love today, you know, whether it's bin Laden and others were providing support to the Muslims in that side. Am I wrong to consider that? I mean, there's a third element, I guess, too, is the fact that we're working hand in hand with countries that we don't necessarily get along with. And, and, and the Russians is a great example of this. I mean, we did joint operations. I'm sure you worked within that territory because when we did joint operations with them, we went north into your neck of the woods to work hand in hand with the Russians in their sector. Um, so let's start with the Serb side. Um, is it safe to say the Russians were actively using the environment in Bosnia to collect on the U.S. military? It is absolutely safe to say that. Uh, not only not only the Russians, but we had some partners, you know, friendly partners, and I won't mention who they are, but anyone who operated in Bosnia knew that some of our allies uh, would try to thwart our activities and collect against us. That was widely known at the time. But, uh, yeah, the Russians had checkpoints, and uh, it was very Cold War-esque in some ways because we had to operate outside the gates of uh, our operating bases. And that was rather the unusual that military personnel, uh, maybe they would have longer hair and uh, they would uh, have civilian vehicles. We would operate outside the operating bases and cross through Russian checkpoints. I remember one in particular that you could see the cameras that would take pictures of everybody at the checkpoint. We would be waved through after a few questions. And... Uh, there was no doubt that the Russians were tracking our activities, tracking our license plates, and we rotated our cars and we took uh, routine precautions. But there was little doubt that not only were the Russians collecting against us, but there was some co cooperation between them and the Serbs that they have a natural, a natural partnership with. Well, I mean, the Serbs were a client state That's right. of the Russian. I mean, they, even the interesting thing were you, were you there in '99 when the when the Kosovo War was happening? I was. Yeah, because that was the crazy time because we're, we're literally fighting a war against a direct client state of the Russians and at the same time working hand-in-hand -hand with them in Bosnia. That's right. Those were really interesting times watching Kosovo play out and at the same time operating in an environment like Bosnia. To your point that you made earlier, we were trying to track Mujahideen. We were uh, very wary that the Iranians were operating uh, – in places like Tuzla and trying to track American. Mm -hmm. And we didn't know what the threshold was for violence against U.S. military forces. And that's the key point. This very much became a dress rehearsal for operations in Afghanistan and Iraq years later. Because our tradecraft standards, our field craft, operating in urban environments had to be so high because, first of all, there were political vulnerabilities. So we had to be very wary of that. We had to be very careful. So the care that we went into for operations for one simple meeting was significant. And uh, that became very good learning and very useful. And I've talked to operators since then that were on the ground in Afghanistan. And uh, they agree with my contention that that, uh, that work was a great dress rehearsal for Afghanistan and Iraq. Because these are urban environments where the majority of the people don't want us there. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, and, and so they're, they're informing on us. They're basically 
trying to do everything they can to slow us down, to make us look in a different direction than the one we're actually looking for, the, whether it's for uh, someone wanted for a war crime for during the war, or if it's a weapons cache, or if it's a underground uh, mass grave that's been buried. The likelihood is 90% of what you hear from John Q. Public is trying to deceive or trying to direct us in the wrong way. That's true. And uh, frankly, when you were in the Republic of Srpska, you were operating in a Serb-dominant environment, and it was very unfriendly uh, to, to the United States in particular, but more generally to, to stabilization force, the, the military presence mm-hmm. on the ground. So everywhere you went, you would get you know, uh, stares, and you know that uh, there was an informal reporting for where you moved, what kind of vehicles you were in, and your pictures were taken. And uh, we were very, very cognizant of that. So working essentially behind enemy lines in the Republic of Srpska, it's got to be a great opportunity to practice tradecraft. Because you, you kind of think of in the denied areas during the Cold War, it's somewhat similar to that, where you're having to think about things like vetting sources and asset validation, all the stuff you learn how to do when you're doing CI work. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it's not only are you hearing from the right person, but there's a possibility that you're being led down a path into a literal kinetic ambush. It's not just bad intel. You can get your guys killed if you're not doing your job in the right way. No, that's right. The infrastructure that we put in place for one personal meeting was significant, and it was put together meticulously to ensure that the source would not double on us or set up some kind of ambush. And since they didn't happen, ambushes against U.S. forces, although there were some attacks in Zvornik, I believe, um, no one, uh, no Americans were killed um, that I can recall. But uh, that said, we didn't know the thresholds, as I said before. So the idea of putting together a meeting meant that we had to do uh, counter-surveillance. We had to emplace that on a route. We had fixed counter-surveillance, mobile surveillance. We had... uh, Well, tell the story of what I'm calling the impromptu garage door story. You told me about having to uh, to set up counter surveillance for for an asset meet. Yeah, that's a great story. And uh, again, until recently, I hadn't really reflected on that. But we simply wanted to conduct one meeting where an individual had to uh, get his vehicle to a designated location that happened to be along the ZOS, if you will, the zone of separation, really a no man's land, in an abandoned house with an abandoned garage. But we needed to get him to that no man's land, and we needed him to follow directions of a route. And all along that route, we had fixed surveillance. Uh, so we knew that he wasn't uh, being followed, that he wasn't picking up any any uh, partners along the way. He wasn't uh, doing anything to his vehicle. So we watched and monitored his vehicle, unbeknownst to him, of course. And we had a safe site a couple miles away where we had uh, a, a team that could respond. But all along that route, uh, we uh, we had checkpoints essentially set up, unbeknownst to him. And the objective was to get him to that no man's land, 
to get him into that driveway. There was a problem, a simple problem, that uh, the garage in that driveway was exposed, so we had to build a shroud. Not a hardened garage, but we put together a shroud that seemed to fit in, and uh, we had fastened it previously into the uh, into the garage. So when it's basically a sheet, that's you hung right, across a sheet, it, yeah. but it was dark. <laughs> yeah, and uh, that's exactly right. It was a sheet. Maybe it was a, a shower curtain. Yes. I don't know, but it was certainly jerry rigged. That when he rolled into the driveway, he wouldn't have it wouldn't have stood out. Uh, but it, the garage was covered, and inside the garage, it was going to be me and an operator, and we simply wanted to be there to make sure he followed his directions and he moved to a another vehicle on foot across the zone of separation to get picked up and moved to another location, which was very unfriendly for him. Uh, so we had precautions on the other side of the so, sauce as just well. Just to be very vague about this, it's it, Bosnia was separated almost down the middle, where the Eastern Orthodox Republic of Srpska, the Serbs, were on one end, and the Federation of Bosnia-Herzegovina, which tended to be more the Muslim side, was a little crutch thrown in there, but the Muslim side was on the west. Essentially, this is North and South Korea. This is as That's unfriendly right. as that can be. So very few Bosnian Serbs wanted to find themselves west of this and vice versa. So you're basically insinuating that this is someone that you're sending west who probably, if he was caught west, would not have a very happy ending. That's exactly okay. right. So now you have a Serb going into a Muslim-dominant area. And uh, we were controlling every aspect of this meeting to get him to a safe site uh, to perform some tasks that we had to do to validate his information and his intelligence. And he was an unknown force. And he was uh, loose in the backfield. And uh, we didn't trust him, in short. Well, he could have been a dangle. He could have been somebody that was either setting you up for disinformation or setting you up for actual an attack in some ways. That's right. So this simple meeting was choreographed with multiple operators on the ground, as I had indicated. So what could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong, exactly. So I love to tell this story because it was the law of unintended consequences. And what it was is uh, our friend zipped down the road, all the checkpoints were called out, and everything was on time, and uh, activated a a signal to tell him to signal it was okay to pull into that driveway. So as he approached, uh, the brakes locked up and he took a hard left-hand turn and he pulled into the driveway. But with the screeching of the tires and uh, the, uh, the headlights, we recognized that we made a mistake, but there was nothing we could do because uh, he pulled into the driveway extremely fast, hit the shroud, and uh, there was nothing me and one operator could do uh, except for hope that he didn't proceed through the uh, shower curtains, the shroud, and uh, virtually hit us in, in the dro- driveway of the, uh, the garage or inside the garage. He stopped, in short, got out of the vehicle and stumbled to the meeting because what we didn't anticipate is our friend had been drinking that night, something we didn't build into our plan. Unfortunately, he never saw us. The car didn't come through the garage and hit us and ram us through the other side. Uh, we got what we needed to in that meeting, and we had subsequent meetings, which led us to a successful operation down the line. But that gives you an example, small window in the kind of work that we did on the ground in Boston. And it, 
maybe a lesson learned about delegating authority. How, how, how much were you needed on the site for that operation? Yeah, in hindsight, I probably didn't need to be there. I could have been at one of the static sites. It didn't take my experience to trigger a signal that it's okay for him to come into, uh, into the driveway that night. So there were some very good lessons learned that uh, those seeds were planted that night in Bosnia. So let's wrap up part one of this conversation with another story um, from, from this time period because Bosnia is a great example of really one of the first times, and it's so normal now, the first times you have military special operators working directly and jointly with people from the civilian counterintelligence and intelligence agencies. And, and the, you know, this is kind of the training ground for what comes afterwards. And you have a story where you are actually in support of CIA doing a meet in what we can consider a bad neighborhood. And you provided them with support in multiple ways. Yeah, it was very simple, yeah, but it was elegant in its simplicity. And we knew that uh, CIA was conducting a meeting. And for effect, we flew a helicopter timed exactly when our CIA counterparts were telling the sources that, hey, you know, we control the space here in uh, Bosnia, and uh, we can bring to bear a great deal of resources. And we flew very low and slow in the fog of the night, timed perfectly with the meeting. And that simple little vignette reinforces the collaboration that broke out all over Bosnia. This was a time where the interagency worked together in ways that we had never worked together before. We learned some experiences in Somalia. I wasn't on the ground in Somalia, but that learning went to Bosnia, and this was the time where the interagency worked in earnest together. And that's why I can't underscore anymore, emphasize the importance of how hard we work together on the ground as an interagency team. And that happened in Bosnia. So that simple story reflects the kind of collaboration we had. And it was simple in its execution. As well. Essentially a stadium flyby at just the right time exactly. man, to get that point across. Exactly. Well, and that, I, I, it sounds simple, but that's an operation that may not have been capable a couple years earlier because of the, the inability of kind of cross communications between the civilian intelligence agencies and the military special operations just didn't exist as well as it did later on. That's right. And, and I think uh, that's exactly the point that we had learned previously that uh, we would work better if we worked as an interagency team rather than independent. Well, you can, I mean, we'll pick up with Afghanistan in part two. You can certainly see that right off the bat with the, the initial missions into Afghanistan were a mixture of agency paramilitary types and the SEALs and SF. We're able to hit the ground running an operation that may have taken a year to plan, you know, going back a decade earlier, these contingencies were already in place because of some of the joint operations that happened in the Balkans. Yeah, Vince, not just the the, the contingencies in the, in the learning, but the relationships, right. the personal relationships. And I would emphasize that we knew each other. We knew the chiefs of station or we knew the chiefs of operations that became chiefs of station post 9-11. And that, that personal relationship factor can't be ignored. 
The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution to help support future educational programming. Please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.